making a film, it's like renovating your kitchen. <laughs> you know, you budget for it. You get the designs for it. At some point you go, oh my God, we got a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't at all what we thought it would be. And then it begins to take shape again, and you go, well, wait a minute. No, this isn't bad. It's not what I thought it would be, but I like what it's becoming. From WNET, New York Public Media. Welcome to WNET Up Next. Hi, I'm Tom Stewart. At Up Next, we're going to take you behind the scenes for a closer look at what's happening here. We'll be talking about our upcoming shows and meeting the people who create them. So if you're hiking or commuting, out for a stroll, or just hanging out at home, give us a listen as we'll take you for a special look inside the world of WNET. With us today is Fred Kaufman, the executive producer of Nature. Among his many honors, Fred has been given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Wildlife Film Festival. And the series Nature itself has received by our last count more than 700 honors from the television industry. Now this fall marks Nature's 34th season on the air on public television and of course uh, on other platforms as well, which we'll talk about. Fred, welcome to WNAT Up Next. I'm glad to be with you. Great. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the history of the series. Of course, Nature is really one of public television's jewels. It's the lo one of the longest running, the most successful. How did Nature really come to be? Well, uh, Tom, going back to 1982, uh, and this is before cable, uh, and basically three networks and a couple of uh, independent stations, and Channel 13. And at the time, George Page, who became the host of Nature for many years, was um, director of programming. And he had made a commitment with the BBC for two series, natural history series. One was a three-part series called Flight of the Condor, which was actually the first thing we ever put on the air. And then he co-produced a six-part series called The Discovery of Animal Behavior, which featured people like Charles Darwin and Carl Lorenz, people who had a very big impact in, in the study and science of animal behavior. Mm -hmm. So there were nine shows, and George had this thought of why don't I just buy a couple of more uh, individual hours and I have a series to put on the air. And there we had the first season of Nature put together. Wow. And you were there at the very beginning. I was there uh, in, in 1982. I was hired as a production assistant uh, for three months. Fred was uh, 11 years old at the time. We just want to point that out. <laughs> and at the time, I had my resume in at CBS Sports, and I just thought, okay, I'll do this for a little bit. And what I really wanted to do was get into sports, and I thought, that'll happen. Uh -huh. And I was hired for three months, and after three months, I got renewed for another three months. And um, the series always did very well from the moment it hit air. It always did very well with the critics and the audience, and I just stayed with it took the journey. That's great. But you've been the executive producer now for many, many years. You started off essentially as a production assistant on, on Nature. Tell us a little bit about that journey. What, what led to you becoming executive producer of Nature? You know, I was lucky. I, I came in when the series was being created and we didn't have a full staff. There weren't high expectations for the series. And um, I was, you know, the second hire. And um, you know, Tom, it was, I just think it was hard work. You know, I had actually been out of work for a while. And I had also worked for a pledge and fundraising at Channel 13. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time Nature came along, I was really 
hungry for something like this. I didn't want to do pledge. I didn't want to be out of work, obviously. And I thought, okay, you know, let me make sure I, I sink my, my claws into this and and do what I need to do. And, and that's what I did. I kind of, in a way, self-taught um, just what, what did I need to do to make sure my boss had everything he needed and uh, how do I make myself valuable? I mean, it's it's so the process of self-education and, and and hard work. Yeah, I I think it's it's a good lesson for for everybody. I had been I had moved to California. I had worked Universal Studios in the mailroom. I came back to New York. I had a little bit of a journey that never quite got me to where I wanted, and so I wasn't fresh out of college. And when nature came along, you know, I knew what it was like not to have. A steady job on on a, a series like this, and so I was hungry for it, and I just really worked very hard, long hours. What are some of the biggest challenges that you have in producing this series? You know, Tom, I think the greatest challenge, and it just just doesn't apply to me. It's it's everybody in in media, and that is how to be relevant and how to get attention for the work you do. And um, it, the audience is so fractured. And with what we do, we spend a lot of money on our films. It takes over two years to make a nature film. Uh, a lot goes on, and when you put it out there and you don't get as big an audience as you would like, it's a little mm -hmm. frustrating. So how do we get attention for what we do, and how do we leave a mark and that sort of thing? Thankfully, the PBS audience and the Channel 13 audience is a very loyal audience. So they come back week after week and they know the shows we do and they support the work we do. And, and so it's very gratifying that we're not working on something where you know, people come to see it and then they leave and they never come back again. So if you can encapsulate it, what, to what do you attribute this, this incredible long run? You know something? Um, don't tell anybody, but it's really not me. Um, wildlife programming has always been very popular going back to the 50s and 60s with Mutual of Omaha, Mutual of Omaha. and the geographic specials and Disney and they will always be um, very special and popular it, it, it just doesn't really it, there's a bit of ebb and flow to it but people are always fascinated about wildlife and what kind of impact uh, does this programming have does nature have and what, what do you hear from the viewers Oh, God. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, the word I've been using lately is just a worthiness. It's, you know, you're doing a one-hour documentary. When you think about it, an hour is a long time to ask from people, you know, hey. Especially today. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Sit down for an hour. I have something to tell you. Well, you know, you got to take that very seriously. And people recognize that what we present to them is worthy of their time. And um, I think it creates a huge awareness of what's going on in the world. Uh, we were the first media outlets, for example, many years ago, we did Silence of the Bees, which looked at this problem of disappearing uh, honeybees. Um, ivory, uh, invasive species, uh, global warming. I mean, all these things that are, you know, f really catching on and top of mind, you know, we've introduced these issues, you know, 10, 15 years ago. When uh, Cable first came out, a lot of people said that this would really spell the end of a franchise uh, like nature, uh, but that really has not proven to be the case at all. In fact, you seem stronger than ever. Well, you know, with Cable, you know, they're, they're the sort of thing where um, 
you hold up something shiny in the street and the dog's eye catches it and goes, oh, my God, what's that? What's that? I got to get that. I got to get that. That's what cable does. Whatever is new and shiny and seems popular, they all jump on it. And the minute there's a loss of audience, they abandon it. So with what we do, um, this is our commitment. So, yeah, there are times when it kind of, oh, my God, we got some competition out there. But it's usually not for very long, and it's really not what we do. We've always been very respectful of wildlife. We were never about, you know, um, hard-to-watch predation sequences, jaws and claws, that sort of thing. It was always a little bit more respectful and sophisticated. Now, the the filmmakers that you deal with uh, out in the field, very special breed of person. Tell us a little bit about that. What what are some of the qualities that go into uh, a natural history film? Well, I could never do it. I've been on location, and um, I'm a New Yorker. I have no patience. (laughs) You know, things cannot happen fast enough for me. Um, When you're a wildlife filmmaker, you're a different breed. First of all, you really enjoy being outdoors. And I know people, a lot of people say, well, I like being outdoors. I can assure you, wherever we're making a natural history film, it's either too hot or too cold. <laughs> it's never comfortable. And um, it's just a, it's a hard place to operate in. Um, you need to have a great knowledge about vehicles because you need to know how to fix your Land Rover if something goes wrong. Yeah. You have about 12, 15 cases of camera equipment and all sorts of things. And more often than not, and this is not an exaggeration, you're not shooting so you're just waiting you're waiting and you can go days and days and days and i've been on location and it drives me crazy (laughs) and i once said to somebody i don't know how you do this because you know you're up before the light comes up and you're out there and you you kind of head back when the sun's going down and you didn't shoot anything and you know really didn't accomplish anything i go how do you do this day after day um and he looked at me and he said well Fred, you live in New York. You probably commute over an hour. You're dodging people in traffic. It's noisy and it's hot. He goes, how do you do what you do every yeah. day? I mean, yeah. Different ends of the pers- spectrum. Perspective. Exactly. What the heck are you doing as executive producer of a program like Nature? Not only that, Tom, but my knowledge of natural history is probably not nearly as, as wide and far as people would think. And I really had no interest in it growing up. So, yes, this is a very strange place for me to end up. I'll tell you where it is valuable, though, and the difference I do make. Very often, uh, and certainly when I was coming up through the ranks, these shows were being produced by people who had zoology degrees, or they were marine biologists, they were researchers, they were scientists. So they were very much excited about certain aspects of the science and discovery. You know, for them... This was all wonderful. Mm -hmm. Then I would come in, and you had this impatient New Yorker who didn't know much about anything but could react to everything. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was very easy to say, you know, this section here, I don't understand that. might make all the sense in the world to you, but you have to explain that better. More often than not, I would say things like, this is too slow. You've lost my interest here. I'm like a doctor with a stethoscope. You know, a doctor puts their stethoscope on your heart. And even though you know your heart is beating, they see layers of interest and sounds and things like that that have meaning to them. So that's what I do when I look at a film. I look at it and go, you know, 
you didn't explain that well, or you mentioned this here, but you never followed up, or that's too slow, or that scene you have 20 minutes in should actually be the first scene in the film. I'm just more of somebody who's, I'm less passionate about it, and I'm more like a craftsman. I like come in, and I want to tinker with stuff and, you know, take the nails out and move things around. And it occurs to me, too, that you kind of, you sort of fill in the position of the viewer. Exactly. You sort of say, okay, you know. Everything I do is really, you know, people ask me, how do we uh, come up with the shows we come up with? And, well, we get pitched things from different producers and we read things in magazines and, you know, different types of scientific uh, journals. Mm -hmm. Virtually every decision is how does it affect me as a viewer? If my gut tells me, oh, boy, that sounds interesting, let's take it further. So, yes, I react to everything. And it's a muscle you sort of build on and strengthen as the years go on. You know, you realize, oh, you You know know what works. You know what works and you know how to look at it and evaluate it. And, of course, with the talent, you you know, uh, I I know most of the people in this industry. I know what they're good at. I know what they're they're not good at. I know the guy you hired to film sharks is not the guy you hired to film elephants. You know, you know what their strengths are and all of that. But yes, I, I bring sort of a much more of an objective uh, kind of view and eye to these things. But but just for, for an example, uh, you mentioned the idea of an hour of film. How long would it take uh, the average filmmaker? I know you can't really come to a total average, but how long in the field to come up with that hour of film? Well, now that we shoot digitally, Mm -hmm. meaning you could shoot a lot more than you were able to when you had physical rolls of film. If I told you we shoot 800 hours, Mm. we shoot 800 hours. That's amazing. And um, the problem with that is you have to go through 800 hours. (laughs) So the more you shoot, actually, the more work you create for yourself. So you, you do have to be judicious in when to turn the camera on and how often because you're going to have to go back and log all this material. That's something I I was very curious about. The the whole post in the field, the post-production process, uh, the editing, the uh, scoring of the music, the voiceover. Speak a little to that. I think people don't really realize how important that is. Well, we usually give ourselves two years in the field. And the reason for that is all the behavior is really dependent on the seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, you can't just run out and on a Thursday and go, okay, I'll get everything I want by next Saturday. So you need to be in the location when the behaviors are predicted to happen. And that's okay. usually during the course of, in some places it's two seasons, in some places it's four seasons. And it's wise to give yourself some overlap. So if you want to start shooting in the fall something, you want to give yourself until next fall the end of next fall, so you have two shots at at whatever it is you're trying to get. So you're looking at about a two-year kind of window. Uh-huh. You're not shooting every day, but it's a two weeks here, a week here, 10 days here, you know, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a two-year window. And um, then it's about a three-month editing process. Mm-hmm. And in that editing process, you're writing script and, uh, you know, finessing and polishing that. Um, and then it's about a month. Uh, once you've finish the film it's about a month of just sound work uh, creating the sound effects uh, whatever little touches you have to add to the film bringing in a narrator it takes about three hours for a you know a narrator to come in and record and then you need a couple of days to mix the narration and with the sound effects and it making a film uh it's like renovating your kitchen (laughs) 
uh, you know, you budget for it, you get the designs for it. At some point you go, oh my God, we got a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't at all what we thought it would be. And then it begins to take shape again and you go, well, wait a minute. No, this isn't bad. It's not what I thought it would be, but I like what it's becoming. Mm -hmm. And it sort of comes together. And then, you know, it's in the last week of renovating your kitchen. It's the same as the last week of finishing your film. Okay. The knobs to the cabinets go in and that looks beautiful. The final... The punch list you've been through. Yeah, it, it's, it's just the, the final coating of paint. Um, all those little things that accent the room is what we do at the end of a film, and then it clicks, and, and hopefully it's magic, and it works. And people just love it, and people are extremely supportive of nature. You know, Fred, you were talking about the filmmakers and how long they they spend uh, in the field to, to make a film. Uh, what, what kind of insights do they glean from the animals as, as to when's going to be a good opportunity? Well, you know, this is years of experience and being in the wild and um, listen we're right on the edge of Times Square here uh, if I say Tom I'm going to Grand Central Station you know you would know exactly what streets I should take what hours of the day I should avoid I mean it's it's that level of experience that these people have they they're out there day after day season after season um, they they just have the benefit of years of experience and knowing when animals show up and where and why and um, they're, they're just extremely knowledgeable about it. There's one guy we've worked with, his name is Bob Landis um, and he lives right outside Yellowstone National Park. He goes into Yellowstone every single day with his camera, not because he's hired, he's not getting paid. That's what he does every single day. 365 days a year, he goes into Yellowstone and he films. And most of the time, it's not usable. But this guy knows everything about the park. He knows where everything is and when they come out and where you can find them. And there are other people doing that as well. There's a whole contingent of women. They're these uh, wolf women. And all they do is they go into the park every day and they look for these wolves. So before you know it, you meet other people who have the same fascination. It's a community. It's a network. They're on their phones, you know, when they spot animals and things like that. So if you're in Africa, for example, you're communicating with all the, the guides from the safari camps. They come back, they write in their log books for the, the journals what they saw that day. And, you know, slowly you begin to compile this um, kind of reservoir of information of where animals were seen and when and all of that. And, and you get pretty good at it. Fred, I know that you uh, have worked with a filmmaker named Neil Reddick who uh, deals with these incredibly ferocious birds. And I know that you had a particularly personal up-close uh, experience there. I wonder if you could talk about it. Well, Neil is a falconer, and I think he's one of two people in the country that has a harpy eagle which is a, uh, a bird you find in South America. It's the most powerful bird in the world. I mean, it's talons. It's like a hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, it actually catches monkeys and eats monkeys. And I've seen this bird up close, and you do not... You could just see the power in, in, the, in its talons. And Didn't we're, he actually have it in his house? Yeah. <laughs> we were shooting fundraising pledge spots, and it was raining outside. So I said, let's go into the kitchen. So how bizarre is that? You have the most powerful bird in, in, in the world, and it's a good, I don't know, about two feet tall. 
and here you're in somebody's kitchen in, in Prairie Duchesne, Wisconsin. And um, what's interesting about the bird, and I was standing next to Neil. Neil had the bird on his arm. It moves its head in a circular fashion, and that's how it pulls things into focus. Mm-hmm. But the head, it has a very long neck, which you can't really see because it's all covered with feathers. The reason it has a very long neck is it hunts monkeys. And it'll sometimes bring a monkey back to its nest to eat it. And very often the monkey is still alive. And if the monkey is flailing its arms or legs, it can't reach the head of the eagle. Anyway, the my point is when I'm standing next to Neil, I was a little discombobulated because the head of the harpy was sort of very close to me. And yet the body was like six inches further away. And it was just... Very Did you for a moment see yourself being taken to the harpy's <laughs> nest as lunch? I said to Neil, I go, God, that beak, I can't keep my eyes off that beak. It looks so dangerous. And he said, well, listen, don't worry about the beak. It's not going to, the beak's not going to do anything to you. The, it's the talons that you need to be afraid of. And sure enough, that, that back talon, you know, they're the equivalent of their thumb mm-hmm. um, is what they slices right through the, the head of a monkey or anything. I mean, you could just see it's really devastating. So this is our advice to all of our up next <laughs> listeners. You know, it's good advice. Now, I know like, you know, as, as a proud parent, uh, you, you don't have, you know, people don't have favorite children. But but over the years, do you have a couple of films that really stand out? Well, I used, I used to think that way, but the film we did in my life as a turkey, uh, which won an Emmy, uh, is my favorite film by far. Remind the folks about how that worked. Well, I'll... It's a true story about a guy and sort of a naturalist who was living in Florida at the time. And he was very curious uh, where he lived. There were a lot of wild turkeys. And he was very curious about wild turkeys so much so he wanted to raise them himself to see what it is they needed to be taught and what they instinctively knew. There was a great deal of development going on in his area. And he had told these workers if he finds a clutch of turkey eggs instead of destroying them, which they did, just bring them to him. Mm-hmm. He got these eggs. He sort of stayed with them, you know, kept them under lights to heat them. And as those eggs cracked open and those little pults, is what they call these young turkeys, came out, the first thing they see they think is their mother. It's called imprinting. And so the first thing they saw was Joe Hutto. And they stayed right next to him like glue. So wherever he walks, they walk. You know, they always look to him for security, etc. And he details this journey from when these pults first came out to when they mature. And through it all, he's talking about the fact that they really don't need him, that they're virtually, you know, ready for life coming out of those eggs. You know, they instinctively know which uh, animals to stay away from. Um, when they come to a sawed-off tree, they sort of know there's something wrong. It's it's not a normal-looking tree that mm-hmm. rotted. Rather, it was some piece of machinery that cut it, you know, horizontally. And so they were confused by that. So we were able to see these behaviors that you would not have been able to see yes. otherwise. Yeah. What we did in this film, Joe Hutto lived this life 20 years ago and wrote a book about it. We got an actor to recreate all those events who lived with these little turkeys for nine months. Mm -hmm. And it was just an extraordinary presentation that um, exceeded my expectations. And Joe Hutto, 
just spoke so warmly and interestingly and, and beautifully. And, and it was a real captivating film. And it was, we got so, he got marriage proposals after that. <laughs> um, and we ended up doing another film with him called Touching the Wild, uh, which went out last year and is up for an Emmy this year. So we're looking forward to hearing about that. But Turkey was just a very unexpected story that you would not have seen anywhere else. That's that's really wonderful. Now, we're just beginning an, a brand new season. The first one is uh, uh, called Nature's Miracle Orphans. It's really a soap opera, Tom, about the people who dedicate their lives to raising these orphaned animals and the struggle of putting them back in the wild. I mean, everybody thinks it shouldn't be a big deal, but it is a big deal. And more often than not, these orphaned animals don't make it mm -hmm. uh, because we simply cannot provide everything that their you know, natural mothers could. But um, we have a sloth named Newbie who goes through pneumonia two times. Um, we try to raise um, wallabies that um, are socially awkward mm -hmm. and don't know how to enter a group. And I mean, there's so many parallels with raising little children, sure, but it's sure. it's about, you know, these very unfortunate circumstances and these animals that should be in the wild with their mothers uh, can't be. And we have these human surrogates and they bring them along to the point where you hope to release them and and hope for the best. Sounds fascinating. And I also know that you made a personal appearance recently with a sloth and uh, You've learned that wonderful thing that actors are taught very early on, never to appear on stage with a child or, or an animal, in your case, a wild animal. Tell me a little bit about the press conference with the sloth. We did a sort of a press junket, and we had a sloth uh, with us. <laughs> the thing is, as cute as they are and as cute as this one was, and the sloth's name was Ambien, <laughs> they're nocturnal, so they sleep during the day. So we had a sleeping sloth on stage. Say that sleeping sloth sleeping on stage. Sloth. And uh, but nevertheless, um, we did this press conference for about eighty or so press, and we ended it early. And we said, "Hey, if you want to come up and take a picture of the sloth, uh -huh. just look at it. You can." <laughs> do you know the press created a line, which they rarely do. <laughs> They waited online and behaved really well just to get up close to this sloth. It's a rare. <laughs> it's, it's not something it's you get very, every day. Sloths are very big. If you've seen one, uh, you know, they, they look like puppets. You know, they just and they move so slowly and they have this sort of grin on their face. Um, they live in trees. The only time they come down from a tree is to poop. <laughs> and then they go back up the tree. Uh, that's the life of a sloth. Okay. So it's nature's miracle orphans. Uh, we're looking forward to that one. Now, of course, in public television, one of our our iconic figures is Big Bird. But uh, this is my way of getting into a program called Why Big Birds Can't Fly. Nothing to do with our Sesame Street Big Bird. But this is a David Attenborough uh, production. Right. You know, I always thought it was nature's cruelest joke to, you know, make a bird and give it feathers and all those things and yet not give it the ability to fly. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a handful of these birds. Ostriches don't fly. Rias, uh, emus, kiwis. Ratites. Yeah. And so it's really, you know, Sir David, who happens to be 89 years old, and he's still doing this. And it's Sir David's sort of uh, evolutionary 
story of why these birds are flightless and how did they become that way and mm-hmm. why is it and what do they do? And and so um, it's sort of an interesting look at um, animals you think should fly but don't. Yeah, looking forward to it. it it's something that apparently that uh, before the dinosaurs uh, came about, they did fly. And when the dinosaurs became extinct, they didn't need to fly anymore. So well, that, that's yeah. kind of how they evolved. Uh, this is one that sounds uh, very exciting. Uh, this and took you also with the filmmakers to Botswana, and it's called Soul of the Elephant. I want to hear a lot about that. The filmmakers, Derek and Beverly Joubert, are, uh, they lived in Botswana for 30 years, and uh, they've done a lot of National Geographic shows, and I've always wanted to work with them. And so we came to this idea, and basically it's a look at elephants and their intelligence and their emotions and um, who they are. I mean, really trying to get to the soul of this animal. Well, they, they discovered the corpses of uh, well, a pair of elephants. Yeah, you know, uh, Derek and Beverly, they come to this killing field and there's skulls and ivory and bones of, uh, you know, um, bleached white and they're thinking, what is this? It, it couldn't be poachers because the tusks are still here. So they took these two characters, the bones of these two male characters, and they said, let's go back and kind of retrace their life about what they would do and how they would get old and the experiences and and all of that. And so it's sort of this um, looking back at the life of an animal through these contemporary elephants in Botswana. And to be an elephant in Botswana is, is pretty good because they're not poached there. Uh-huh. And um, because of the mineral content, their ivory happens to be small and brittle. So it's not really um, desired by poachers and the people who work on ivory. So the elephants there are pretty safe. And I went out there in in March to look at the film um, and spend some time with Derek and Beverly. And I've been to Africa before. And I've, I've been all over. But, you know, Africa is really just so different than any other place. It's really thrilling. And you see big animals, and you see them all the time, and you see them up close. Anyway, I had this experience. We were uh, we finished screening the film, and we wanted to see elephants, and it had rained a few days earlier, miles and miles away, uh-huh. and elephants walked toward the rain, toward the water. So we didn't, they weren't near us. In any case, we had the good fortune of finding them. We found about a herd of 60 elephants in a field. And we went down there in our vehicles, and we just were there standing, not standing, but sitting in the vehicles, silently watching them and taking pictures. Tom, there's something about being in the company of elephants that's very different from any other animal. And you just intuitively feel that they know about you, mm-hmm. that they're thinking, they're fully aware of who you are and what you're doing. I've been as close to uh, giraffes as I've been to elephants. Giraffes couldn't care less about you. We were close. We were 10 yards away from mating lions. Fascinating behavior. Lions couldn't care less about you. Elephants are on a whole other level. And I came away thinking there was one elephant that was maybe 10 feet from the vehicle just standing there. And I know this is going to sound loopy, but I tell you, I think that elephant was trying to communicate with us in the way we would try to communicate with an animal, Mm -hmm. Um, but doing it in a way that we weren't 
you know, elephants communicate through their feet, you know, um, ultrasonically. But no sense that they felt a threat from you. Of any well, um, no, but they could have. I mean, you stay in a vehicle and that's why they're used to seeing vehicles. And so, no, they didn't feel threatened. And, you know, whenever you're around these animals, you, you're quiet, you move slowly, you don't make a lot of noise. I mean, it's good common sense. You just kind of observe and, and don't look like you're, you know, creating a problem for them. But we got out of the vehicles, which you're never supposed to do. But um, we were given a signal that it's okay, you can come out. And we did, and we got out, and I was lying on the ground. I had my camera, and I was taking these iconic shots. It was a setting sun, and you had these beautiful elephant silhouettes walking across mm-hmm. the setting sun. And uh, it was 90 degrees, but the heat was breaking, and I was just lying on this wonderful African soil. And it was really just a wonderful moment. And then I hear... Um, Derek's wife, Beverly, say, Fred, don't move. Don't get up. And I had so much trust in these people that I thought, oh, I know there are elephants all around us, but they're being overly cautious, and and I'm not going to move anyway, and I'm not going to get up anyway. And, um, and I must say, having that experience of being with the elephants there prior to getting out of the vehicle, my blood pressure went down so low. It was just such a calming thing. And then, you know, a beat, and then I hear a say, stay still. And I'm thinking, okay. And I didn't look to my left or right. I didn't want to see what was there because they're they're big animals. And I thought, okay, worst case scenario, a trunk. I'll feel a trunk. So I was kind of preparing myself to, you know, if I feel something, don't jerk, you know. And then all of a sudden, Derek, out of nowhere, jumped over me and charged the elephant with his hands up, shouting at it, and it sort of moved off. And I got up, and I said, what just happened? And she said, well, I mean, there was a female here, and she saw a little bit of hubbub, and she said, had you not known that, and jumped up with, hey, I got the picture I want, I'm going to go have a beer, you could have startled her, and she could have charged you. Uh, on the other hand, she sees the vehicle, and if she walked over, I was the one furthest out, so I would have been the, <laughs> the first one crushed yeah. actually come over. Now, none of that happened. It was fascinating and thrilling and Did wonderful. you have a little uh, feeling after, a little uh, little scary feeling? Going, I did not. Going, going you away. know, I, yeah. I just, uh, I, the driver, Isaac, came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Fred, how about a nice cold beer? And I said, oh, that would be perfect. <laughs> And now I, I never felt fear, and trust me, I'm the first to feel fear. <laughs> okay. I didn't feel fear. And after the moment, I, at no point did I go, oh, you know, I just felt that's what Africa, was, that, that's what Africa does yeah. to you. You just feel like you're part of the world there. Yeah. Now, our final one I want to ask you about is a two-part series called uh, Pets Wild at Heart. And uh, I'm looking forward to this because this is brought to, you, uh, brought to us by the same filmmakers that were responsible for Earthlight and Penguin. They use all of these uh, cameras. The famous penguin thing is they had a, an artificial... Penguin they, cam. They, they've created a penguin cam. But this, was, this one uh, deals with our, our pets and their secret world of, uh, of wild behavior. Tell us about that. Well, the whole point is that, um, you know, when you scratch the surface of your pet, they're wild animals. And this is looking at some of their wild behaviors that uh, have been controlled or adapted so um, they could live in your home and, and, you know, be polite, (laughs) calm, nice creatures. 
And um, and John Down, the producer of the series, uh, always has some wonderful innovations to let us look at these animals and what they're doing. And he has a hamster, and um, he has this X-ray camera, so you actually see hamster taking in these nuts, and they actually store them all the way down to their hips. Amazing. So it's pretty extraordinary behavior. And of course, we all know that dogs have you can smell a hundred thousand times better than we can, um, how cats climb, for example. Um, just, you know, if you have a pet, um, it's just eye-opening, you know, their behaviors, that the things we don't see. Really looking forward to it. Of course, I, I, I'd like to point out, you know, we talk about nature as a television program that's broadcast on the air, but there are many other ways now that we can, uh, we can see nature. The Nature website, you have a beautiful website. Well, the website, you know, is, um, there's some behind the scenes. There's some additional materials of uh, footage that didn't make the film. You could screen shows. Um, you can engage with us and the filmmaker. And um, it's just a way of knowing more about a particular topic or trying to have more of a one-on-one dialogue with some of the people in the film. That's great. Fred Kaufman, thanks so much for being here with us on uh, WNAT Up Next. And the best for another great season on nature. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed our visit with Fred, and if you should happen to miss any broadcast of Nature, of course, you can catch up with it, as we said, on the 13 Explore app, and also online at pbs.org nature, where you'll find a lot more about the series. Let us know what you think of this podcast, and be sure to come back for more episodes of WNET Up Next. WNET Up Next is brought to you by the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York Public Media in association with the Interactive Engagement Group. I'm Tom Stewart.